This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mattress Firm. Do you get the quality sleep you need? Mattress Firm will find you the right bed for your best rest with their wide selection of quality mattresses at every price. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale. Sleep at night. Hey, y'all, from NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. So you may have not realized it because of all the news right now, but we are in the midst of Hispanic Heritage Month. It runs from September 15th through October 15th. So to celebrate that month, we are going to share a conversation that I'm really proud of. A discussion with author and podcast host Danielle Alarcón. Danielle hosts the fantastic podcast Radio Ambulante. That show began its 10th season just a few weeks ago. In case you haven't already, check out Radio Ambulante. It is a Spanish-language podcast telling stories of Latin American life from all over the world. And it is very, very good. Now, when I talked with Danielle in 2017, we actually weren't discussing his podcast. We were talking about a book he had just released. It's called The King is Always Above the People. It's this collection of fictional stories. And even though the stories are fiction, they shine a light on some very real and present truths about the news and our politics and the Latino experience right now. For instance, this book deals a lot with being an immigrant and what it means to move probably in part because Danielle himself has bounced around a lot. Anyway, at a time when there's still a lot of political discussion about who is able to come to this country and an election next month that could change that debate, Danielle Alarcón's book and its fictional stories are still full of truth and very timely. All right, here is my encore chat with Danielle. Enjoy. So you've experienced migration firsthand. That's a big theme in the book, migration. It comes up in most of the stories. And it's hard. Wandering is hard. Immigrating is hard. It's just hard. And I feel like as someone who was born an American, the story that we get on immigration, on migration, on moving, it's like, yeah, it's hard, but it all works out. Mm. And so many of your stories about movement in this book kind of point to the hardness of it and how it might not actually be happily ever after. There is this sanitized version, I think, of the immigrant story in which, like, you work hard and everything's great. And, like, your mm-hmm. book is kind of like, eh, maybe not. Maybe not, yeah. I mean, I think that's that's true. I think if it were that easy, then maybe we wouldn't be having some of the conversations we're having, you know? I think Which that, conversations? Uh, I mean, that if if every immigrant arrived and had this kind of speed bump free assimilation into the sanitized and idealized version of the American dream, then it wouldn't be quite so uh, controversial to say, like, I support the dreamers, you know, or something mm. like that. I don't know. I, I think that reinvention is hard. You know, even if you're even if you're moving within borders, I mean, let's be honest, like, if you, you know, uh, Americans move for work all the time. Mm-hmm. I think everyone who's moved to a different city for a job and tried to find their place socially and culturally in a new place can attest to like, well, that's a challenge. Yeah. You know, that's not necessarily easy. Oh, I got to find a new apartment. I got to find a new friend. Now do that in a totally different language in a totally Mm. different city without a safety net, without anyone to call. Plus you've got to like, you know, everything you earn, you've got to send half of it back home to support your family Mm. that couldn't make it. I mean, just put it in perspective, people like this is not easy. Then add to that the, the cultural reinvention the personal reinvention that will necessarily happen and how complicated it, on a personal level it can be to sort of rewrite your own personal story of who you are, you know? And then when you get to the United States, no one wants to hear how, how traumatic that journey was. Mm. 
But we know because, you know, many intrepid journalists have covered it and many people have spoken out about their own experiences. It's tremendously hard. It's treacherous. It's dangerous. You know, the stats are are outrageous, you know, of like people who don't make it and, you know, women who get um, assaulted and, you know, people who get robbed. And, you know, we hear it all the time, but it just doesn't process. And once you get here, you're supposed to suddenly be... You're supposed to be a dreamer. You're supposed to be like (laughs) an example of like perfect citizenhood. Right. You're supposed to be like more American than, than, than like apple pie. Exactly. Exactly. Did you feel those pressures? No. My story is is one of great privilege. My story is one of my parents came to, you know, they, they, they won scholarships to go to Johns Hopkins. They came and studied. They went back to Peru. And then uh, one of my father's, uh, my parents' classmates ended up at UAB in Birmingham and, and recruited them to come. And they thought about it for like seven years. They're like, where's Alabama again? And then, <laughs> and then they were like, you know what, let's do it. Not for us, you know, but for the opportunities that it'll give our children. And then that's what they did. That's a common immigrant story as well. It's not the same as the story that I was describing of undocumented minor crossing from Honduras or El Salvador or whatever. Did you feel the same um, kind of pressure, though, to be uber-American? I didn't feel the pressure, but I I was and am yeah. very American. It didn't feel like pressure. It felt like I had a really nice childhood. I had really good friends. I had a sense of uh, there was space for me. You know, one of the things that I never thought about in terms of immigrating somewhere while reading your book the questions and expectations of the people you leave behind. I think so much of what we hear about moving somewhere is the new life you build once you get there. But there's so much in this book about what the people you leave behind expect from you. Yeah. Your challenge is not just to build a new life for yourself in this place you end up. It is to make sure your parents are happy with what you become in that place. And it seems like it's it's a lot of pressure. And like, your characters never really make their families completely happy. Do you think that's usually the case? Yeah, I have a good friend. Uh, after college, one of my first jobs was a post school teacher, and uh, and I became really good friends with the Spanish teacher who was named Carlos, who was uh, Colombian. He came to the United States, mm-hmm. and he told me he was like, you know, like when I go back to Colombia, my family members ask me like if they're going to buy a car, like they want my opinion. If <laughs> they're trying to like figure out where to send like their you know, their kid to school, grade school, they ask my opinion. They want my opinion on everything. And suddenly just by virtue of, of living in the United States, I've been afforded this expert status that I have no business having, you know? This guy was a Spanish teacher at a public school in New York City. Like, w- why would he have any special expertise about what kind of car you should buy? <laughs> you know? Yeah. But there was just this respect given him by virtue of just living in New York. It's almost like you owe people their dreams, you know, yeah. they have a dream and you owe that to them to do it. You know, and I, I remember my, my, my father used to live in Atlanta for a while and he had a very successful career as a psychiatrist at UAB and later at Emory, all of which was all, it was all fine and good. And then a couple of times being in Atlanta, he was asked to come in and, and talk about some aspect of mental health on CNN in Spanish which is based in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in TV, this is based on, yeah, they want to hear you talk, but it's also on, like, who's available and who lives in Atlanta, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, and my dad has done a number of things that are incredibly impressive and written books and do things, you know, been a great teacher and a great professional in any number of ways. It wasn't until he was on a, on CNN in Spanish, you know, for, like, four minutes talking about whatever, that people back home were like, oh, my God, <laughs> he made it, you know? <laughs> yeah, he's finally um, arrived. He's finally arrived, and it's like, uh, you know, he's at that been, point he's he was, been arrived. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like, what is it about you do what you do that can be explained to people back home? You know, yeah. there's a story in the collection called the Provincials. Oh yeah, it's a father and a son. They go back to the father's hometown to sort of dispose of some property, and they run into the father's sort of old friends. This happened to me. You know, I was in the town called Moyendo, uh, and I was paraded around the plaza. This is Renato's son. This is Renato's son. And everyone's like, oh, your father was so smart. Mm. Your father was so brilliant, you know? like, And uh, the sense was one both of pride and, and, a, and then a little bit of tension there, too. Yeah. When we come back, what it means to be an immigrant today. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Homes.com. When you're home shopping as a parent, you have lots of questions about local schools. That's why each listing on Homes.com includes extensive reports on local schools, including photos, parent reviews, student-teacher ratio, school rankings, and more. The information is from multiple trusted sources and curated by a dedicated in-house research team. It's also you can make the right decision for your family. Homes.com. We've done your homework. This message comes from NPR sponsor BritBox. Discover powerful new series like Three Little Birds and BAFTA-winning drama Time, starring Bella Ramsey, Tamara Lawrence, and Jodie Whittaker. Stream the best of British TV only on BritBox. Start a free trial at BritBox.com. With the unemployment rate at record highs right now, millions of Americans are without health insurance. This week on Throughline, how our health care became tied to our jobs. And how a temporary solution turned into an everlasting problem. Listen now to Throughline from NPR, where we go back in time to understand the present. You know, I feel like there are characters in this book. They expect so much from that new place they go to, and that place underwhelms. Or their family expects so much of them once they go to this new place, and they underwhelm their family. Or we expect a certain magic in the place we end up, and that underwhelms us. Like... It, was, it just underlined for me this kind of theme, like, don't expect life or people to be f- awesome or fair. Don't expect it to be great. Like, sometimes things are just adequate or less than adequate, and that's the way it's going to be. <laughs> Is that, were you trying to put that message out in the world with this book? No, I was just I was just trying to write a book that wasn't boring, you know? And, right. and, uh, and if everything works out in a story, then it isn't that interesting. Might sell more. But I think it's fundamentally not interesting. I'm more interested in, in in how things don't work out. I think it makes for a better story. I, I think there there is a, there's a sort of the version of immigration where everything works out and it's like oh, a, yeah. a beautiful a beautiful story and 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 like American triumph. And you know I've been seeing on TV a lot these uh, I think it's Negra Modelo so these these like beer commercials where it's like you know so and so worked really hard and you know his parents were this and now you know. He drinks this beer in a big house, you know, and that's a fine story. It's so it's true often, but it's not mm-hmm. always true. Yeah, and you know the perils of reinvention and the perils of adjusting and the the perils of of dreaming big are that you can also be disappointed big. Are you disappointed? No, no, I'm so lucky. I can't even fathom my good fortune. Mm. So then, how do you get in the head of these disappointing and disappointed people for your books? Well, because I um I I really like to listen to people and people tell me stories. I mean, there's something that I have from when I was a kid and from the point at which Peru went through a terrible period when I was growing up safe and sound in Hoover, Alabama. And I've carried this with me ever since, this kind of survivor's guilt, this kind of sense of like, I got so lucky and there was no 
reason or justification or explanation for it. Mm. My parents left in 1980, the year the war started uh, in earnest, and we did not know that that was happening. It was an accident. And meanwhile, what was my childhood, which was, you know, kind of typical American suburban childhood. uh, Meanwhile, in in Lima and in Arequipa and the different towns around Peru, there was the economy was collapsing, you know, there were car bombs and power outages and kidnappings and political assassinations and tumult. You know, it was just this sense uh, that I had of of survivor's guilt. It's always, mm. I've always been interested in, in other people's mm. stories. I think my story is probably kind of boring. And that's what I've sort of dedicated my professional life to doing, either in fiction yeah. or, or nonfiction. Yeah. Do you still feel survivor's guilt? I think maybe guilt is the wrong word now. Okay. I, I, I don't think guilt is a is often such a useful emotion. Survivor's empathy maybe would be. Okay, okay. Maybe yeah. let, let me re- rebrand it as that, if uh-huh. you'll allow me. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I still sort of feel a connection. I do, I do, I feel very much not being a religious person. I feel very much that that things are feel very arbitrary. And you can you can see people getting the short end of the stick for no other reason than just where they were born and to whom they were born. Mm. I don't feel like you can be a sensitive person and not and not be in awe of how arbitrary things are and be, yeah. and, and be in my position and not be in awe of your own good fortune and then try to work hard to earn it. Yeah. I was thinking today about your book. Like It is a meditation on lots of things, but very much so a meditation kind of on manhood and what it means to be a man. And I, I came away with this thought kind of like, it's a manly book, but it's also a manish book. It is a book that has men that I won't say are behaving badly. You can say that. They they aren't living up to the better moral angels of their nature. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of what were you trying to say about masculinity and manhood with this book? Well, you know, we have we have and we we should and we do have sort of a code of what we believe is the way you know sort of the ways people should act you know and mm-hmm. the ways people you know men should act and the way men should act towards women and the way men should behave in families and we rightfully have these these codes which you know as we've been seeing in the news are are are, are have been violated in egregious ways by powerful you know despicable men all the time i'm not trying to write a perfect world because that world doesn't exist i'm trying to write you know a version of the world as i see it yeah and so, yeah, I think I can think about a lot of these characters who are yeah. Nelson in the Provincials, for example, you know, is a kind of loudish and immature, you know, and uh, he just lies. <laughs> like, he yeah. lies. Yeah. But he's also, you know, entertaining and smart and trying to figure out who he is in relationship to his brother and the country where he is now stuck and where he wishes he weren't and you know, he like a lot of people wishes he were someone else and is trying that on. And in the course of trying that on is, yeah, lying a fair amount. But, <laughs> you know, people do that. And it feels like some of the pressure he's under is pressure that is unique to people from families where migration is a theme. Like, he has not left the home country. His brother has. That sets up, you know, some conflict for him. And some of what informs how he thinks of whether or not he's a man is informed by whether or not he got to leave or stay. Like how much is movement wrapped up in manhood for you? In the case of Nelson, it's, he can't fathom that this is actually his life. Mm. He knows it is because it surrounds him and it's his day to day, but he thinks his life is about to begin somewhere else. He thinks Mm -hmm. that things are going to change 
and that his actual life, this is all uh, before the curtain is raised. And he's in danger of reaching a point where he's like, oh, this was the show. Whoops. You know, and, and, and I think that that's a, a real slippery place to be in. And it's a process of being, you know, of postponing actualization, yeah. of postponing big decisions. Yeah. Um, and it's something he's doing to himself. I want to be clear. It's something he's doing to himself. Not everybody in his position would would respond this way. But there's a certain immaturity and a certain entitlement that he believes in. Uh, maybe he's not even aware of it that is leading him into this state of spinning his wheels, you know, almost like a professional stasis, professional and, and yeah. emotional stasis. Yeah. One of the things you do in this book is you never, ever say exactly the location of mm-hmm. these stories. Yeah. So I always want sort of the widest lane possible in which to play. And I, I think very much of writing fiction as a as a recreational activity for me. It's something that I, I have fun doing. And if I'm not having fun doing it, then I don't really see the point. Um, I mean, it's challenging and it's hard, but the satisfaction you get from, from having done it is, is, is worth it, you know? Um, and by not saying where stories take place and by not pointing out you know, landmarks and countries and cities and places you can find on the map. I just feel like I like I have a, a broader canvas and fewer restrictions, you know. Coming up, Danielle Alarcon on how his book is set nowhere and everywhere at the same time. On Wildcard, the new podcast from NPR, you'll hear people like comedian Jenny Slate reflect on their lives. What is something you think about very differently today than you did 10 years ago? Dressing. Like, not salad dressing. I've always loved it and I'll never stop. <laughs> dressing my body. That's all part of the new game show, Wildcard, only from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. On Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we have very important people on our show and then ask them about very unimportant things. Here's U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Uh, we are also reliably informed that among your enthusiasms, in addition to macroeconomic policy, is mobile games. Uh, There is some truth in that. There's some truth in that. Join us for the NPR podcast that considers all the other things. That's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. NPR's new investigative series, No Compromise, examines an unapologetic family raising hell at the crossroads of gun rights and politics. I'm Chris Haxel. And I'm Lisa Hagan. Listen now to the No Compromise podcast. New episodes drop every Tuesday. You know, one of the things that I felt like, even in spite of not really knowing exactly where these locations were in the book, for the most part, it all felt like it was set in a, how do I say it, a Latino diaspora. Mm-hmm. Like countries and places where people would come from and be in America and be considered Latino. Like it felt very steeped in that. Is that what you were going for? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I think that's just where my obsessions are and where my identity is, and and that's sort of how the stories came out. I don't think that I set out to write a Latino diaspora book, but you do that anyway by accident. Inevitably, every book is a reflection of of, of who you are. Yeah. How do you think you fit into the Latino diaspora? What is your place in it? I have a lot of affection for the word Latino, even though I recognize that it's a pretty arbitrary construction. Oh yeah. You know? I believe in it, even as I realize that it's it's essentially an, an empty vessel that we can fill with whatever we want. Hmm. So I think with with Radio Ambulante, with my show, uh, one of the things that we try to do is in, sort of interrogate where, you know, all the places that Latinos come from and draw connections to here. You know, um, we tell stories from everywhere Spanish is spoken. We sort of think of Spanish as one of the defining features of Latino, even if, you know, not all of our audience has Spanish as their first language. Are you 
conceptualizing what it means to be part of a Latino diaspora differently in this political climate we're in right now, in which in some ways this community is under more scrutiny than before? Yeah, and I would say that I don't think that I'm the one who conceptualized it differently. I think that, you know, when the president launches his campaign by saying that Mexicans are rapists and drug dealers, you know, it's like that conceptual work was done. We know that we've seen it, the you know, the, the kind of emboldening of hate speech that's happened in the last year. Um, and so what are you supposed to do as a Peruvian? You're supposed to be like when someone says, you know, go back to your country. You're supposed to say, well, oh, wait, no, 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 I'm Peruvian. I'm not Mexican. I mm. just want to clarify that. Uh, mm. No, you can't do that. Now you've been all we've all been placed in the same category. Mm. And that's just that's just the way it is. And that's not something that I did or or that, you know, and, uh, you know, the you know, Mexican activists did, and that's not, or, or, or Chicano activists did, that's not something the Dreamers did. That's something that was done at the very top from the very beginning of, of that campaign. So, yeah, inevitably, I think Ryan Bulante has a a role in sort of unpacking that. We've tried to do that. We try to draw connections all the time and tell stories that our audience will find entertaining and illuminating about different aspects of Latino and, and Latin American culture. But, you know, inevitably, there's a, there's a political context in which we're doing. And, you know, every time NPR tweets out one of our headlines in Spanish, there's often, I would say there's always, you know, four or five, six tweets in response that are really? basically like, you know, go back to your country and like, this is America speaking huh. English and da 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 and How does that make you feel? Here's the thing, you know, like I've been thinking about, about this a lot with, you know, the take a knee stuff, you know, I really, really respect and un- and understand why people take a knee. I don't. You know, I go to sporting events with my son and I, I, I sing the national anthem and I sing it because like the country that I'm singing to mm-hmm. is such a beautiful place, man. Mm. That's the, the, like when I, when it's in my, when I'm singing those words and I'm, mm-hmm. you know, people who say mean things to me on Twitter, it's like, I, that's, that's they not just don't, country. that's not my country and that's not who they, they don't, they don't, they don't really know who they're talking to. They don't really know what's in my heart. So they don't, I don't really, really get offended by that. And I really, really have a, a bond with this country that I think, I think, you know, might might surprise some of those people who are tweeting like "go back home" or "go to your country" or whatever they might tweet at, at me or Ryan Bulante, you know. And I should also say, like, I've been thinking about this a lot. No one loves this country like immigrants do. Mm. The patriotism that I feel, the patriotism that my parents feel, it's a it's a very special thing. You know, you if you're born in a country, then that's just. You're, that's it. You're born yeah. there. You know, of course, of course, you love it. You're born there. If you choose it, and in a sense, if you feel like it chooses you, mm. it's just a totally different thing. You think America chose you? Yeah, certainly. Yeah, certainly. You know, I have been talking with comics a lot recently on the show about how they are changing the way they do their work in light of the current political climate, and some of them have had some really thoughtful ways about using comedy and satire to unite communities that might see no reason to unite and to kind of try to talk to the entire country. What yeah. do you think writers and fiction writers, how has the current political climate changed their role, their work, what they should be trying to do, or has it not? It's funny. You know, I, when, when um, it was maybe like the first or second week of the new administration where I, I, I just was, I was thinking, man, like spare a thought for the writer who's like 400 pages into their debut like dystopian novel, you know? Like, uh, why? Just like well, because you 
it does feel like now that all fiction is dystopian and that all of it pales in some way to some of the stuff that's going on. I, I, it, I don't think it's changed what I've done or what okay. I do. Okay. Because there's lots of ways to... I don't think of my, my, my art or my writing as having a political purpose. I think maybe comics might think of it differently. I think that I write to entertain myself. I write to figure out what I think about something. I write in order to imagine myself in situations that I would never want to be in. But it's inherently political. I mean, like, this book is inherently political. Any book about immigration right now is just political. No? Yeah, but when you write it, you're not thinking about that. That's the context in which it's being read. Yeah. But, like, my work is is listening very carefully to the characters in the book and trying to tell their stories. Mm. I peek in on their diaries. You know, like, I know them better than they know themselves. And... um, and I'm, at the end of the day, what I want to do is entertain myself and entertain you and, and, and hopefully, you know, show you some, some truth that you recognize yeah. about your own life, even if the yeah. people are nothing like you. Thanks again to author and podcast host Danielle Alarcon. We talked back in 2017. His book is called The King is Always Above the People. Also, catch his Spanish-language podcast. That one's called Radio Ambulante. Get it wherever you get your podcast. All right, this show was originally produced by Anjali Sastry with help from Brent Bachman, and it was edited by Jeff Rogers and Joanna Hochman. Listeners, we're back in your feeds on Friday. Till then, stay safe. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mass Mutual. The Financial Educators Council says 39% of Americans don't have someone to go to for financial advice. But you can plan for the short and long term with someone backed by 170 years of financial expertise at MassMutual.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you're carrying around a lot of stress, therapy is a safe space to get it off your chest. If you're considering therapy, give BetterHelp a try at BetterHelp.com NPR to get 10% off your first month. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. On, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR.